in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Hinduism. Most Americans seem intrigued to know more about Hinduism. And in Hinduism, every person is put into one of four distinct social slash spiritual categories. They're called castes, kind of like uh, what the doctor puts on your leg if you break your arm, except it's spelled differently, C-A-S-T-E. And uh, here's the kicker, though. There are four different social spiritual strata in Hinduism. There's actually a fifth social strata, Ken, but the people in that one, in the fifth one, fifth category, are considered so spiritually dirty, so spiritually corrupt, according to Hindu thought, they are not worthy of belonging to one of the standard castes, one of the standard categories. And these despised people are called outcasts. Right, Peg? That makes sense. you got four castes and then a group in the outcast category. They're also known as untouchables. No respectable Hindu interacts with them personally. They treat all members of the outcast group or all untouchables as if they are not even people. Untouchables live in and around cemeteries. That's the only place they can live. They get their food out of garbage piles, manure piles, and animal feeding troughs. And as odd and terrible as that kind of classification might sound to our ears, Jewish people living in the time of Jesus had their own version of outcasts. They were called lepers. Now listen up, okay? There isn't a certain amount of overlap between Hindu outcasts and Old Testament lepers, but they're not the same thing. And here's the difference, and it's a categorical difference. In Hinduism, being a member, Carla being an outcast, I hate to use you as an example, but if you were an outcast, you were an outcast because you were born an outcast. Because in previous lives, you've done so many horrific things and have generated so much bad spiritual equity, karma, you deserve to live around a cemetery. You deserve to eat out of the garbage pail. That's the way Hinduism understands that lowest uh, out, that lowest social spiritual strata. In Old Testament Judaism, under the Old Testament covenant, there were some people who were lepers. They were essentially Hebrew untouchables, but they got there through their behavior. In Hinduism, you're born into that category. It's by chance in that sense. I'm putting chat chance with air quotes because I believe in the sovereignty of God. In Old Testament Israel, you got there by your behavior. You got there by your choices. Okay, uh, No respectable religious Jew would have any kind of personal interaction with lepers. And yet, you got to realize how black that background is, Anthony, to appreciate what Jesus is doing here, even in recognizing this guy as a human being. In Matthew 8, 1 through 4, just four little verses, we'll see that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, interacted socially and personally with a leper who crossed his path. And he not only interacted with him, Stan, like he was a legitimate human being, but Jesus cleansed this leper both spiritually and physically when the leper expressed faith in him, Jesus, for that cleansing. And so as we interact with our Lord Jesus through this portion of the word today, we're going to see just how amazing God's grace is. Remember, grace doesn't mean uh, the characteristics of a figure skater at the Olympics, so that's the first thing I think about. You know, she's very graceful. But grace in theology and scripture is unmerited favor. It's blessing and or power you don't earn and you don't deserve. And you can't unearn and you can't undeserve. So we're going to see some of the facets of God's amazing grace. And also, we're going to learn more about the key dynamic of saving faith. But uh, let's pray we'll be really teachable to this really important portion of God's word, which I think is often overlooked and underappreciated. And let's also pray for our troops our peace officers and our firefighters. And, you know, I'm kind of partial and not very objective, but I think TBF is uh, a group of some amazing people, a lot of trophies of God's grace, 
But I look at somebody like Bo West, a young dad, works hard, has three beautiful uh, women in his life, his, his wife and his two daughters, and uh, you know, loves the Lord, loves the Word. So, Bo, I'm going to ask you to uh, pray for us in that direction. Teachability, troops, peace officers, firefighters. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to warm up our capacity for abstract thought, so I give you four mildly amusing statements designed to mildly stimulate our capacity for abstract thought. Not expecting big laughs here. Just uh, friendly size would be good. Why did the chemistry teacher stop dating the biology teacher? No chemistry. Thank you, Bill Shelton. Why do French people love to eat snails? Because they hate fast food. He. I have a doctor's appointment today, but I don't want to go. She. Just call in sick then. Not going to work. And last, hold your applause. The optimist says, that glass is half full. The pessimist says, that glass is half empty. Their mom says, how many times do I have to tell you guys, one of you put a coaster under that glass? <laughs> We're looking at the life of Christ, A.T.Z. And uh, these are real events, real places, and real people. A stands for, A's got two parts. Angels announce the supernormal pregnancy of John the Baptist to his aging parents who are too old uh, to have children, but they do that time. A, two angels announced first to Mary and several months later to Joseph the supernatural virgin conception of the Messiah, the God-man, Savior, Jesus Christ in Nazareth. B, birth in Bethlehem. Thanks to a convenient Roman tax census that in the providence of God, Doug, just so happened at the right time, Mary and Joseph, who lived in Nazareth, traveled 90 miles plus while she was eight and a half months pregnant, and we had a normal vaginal birth. It wasn't a, it was a virgin birth because the virgin gave birth, but the real miracle is the virgin conception. So we have the uh, creator of the universe entering human history out of the womb of a human being and put into a gold-encrusted bassinet in a large palace. That's not what happened, is it? They put him in a feeding trough, right? The kind of stuff, the place that untouchables in India would eat out of. Um, laid him in a manger, and he was the only baby wrapped up like a dead man lying in a manger that night so the shepherds could easily find him. Carpentry career. Tecton is the word we translate. Carpenter it means a skilled worker in wood or stone. Uh, Kylene has seen the Mona Lisa of Galilee in a city just two miles north of Nazareth. We'll see it again, Lord willing, in May. And uh, Jesus may have laid that uh, mosaic floor. Um, and he works from age 12 until about 30 when he starts his ministry, doing that kind of work with his hands. And as I've said many times, you know, in the providence plan of God, Jesus only had a three-year ministry. If it had been me organizing, it would have been 21 years. He would have started at 12. He would have been one of those young preacher boys that seemed to impress people. But uh, God had a better way. D and E begins our Lord's public ministry. D stands for dove descends at the Duncan. Dove descends uh, at the baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist uh, identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Uh, and his righteousness is declared by God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am okay with. You know, well pleased. So when you see documentaries on the Discovery Channel that talk about uh, the period from 12 years old until 30 where the scripture says nothing about Jesus. According to scripture, he, he was a tecton in, in, in Nazareth for those 18 years. But whatever he did, he didn't go and talk to the Hindus and come up with a new theological synthesis because, uh, which would have, you know, denied Old Testament scripture. He was perfectly righteous when he begins his ministry. God the Father says so at D, the Duncan, the baptism. Then E, enemy entices. After his righteousness is declared, he demonstrates his righteousness, right, Scott, by interacting with the key spiritual enemy uh, who is real, who is incredibly intelligent, but he's not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. He can Satan can only be one place at one time. And I don't think he spends a lot of time personally in uh, Duncan. He's got emissaries that work here, but I don't think he spent a lot of time in Duncan. They're probably more in place important places for him to be. And at this point, Steve and I have talked about this, I think, via email. Uh, 
I think one reason you see so much de- de- uh, demonic activity in the Gospels is because that was the epicenter of the entire angelic conflict right there. So it only makes sense to put your forces where the key objectives are. So uh, I think that's why you see uh, more than typical overt kind of things, not to say that they do not continue to function. But I will say this, for every one demon, how many elect angels are there? If one-third of the angels fall, that means two-thirds didn't. So uh, God is a smart enough coach to double-team all the demons. Plus, if they all fell, God still trumps them, right, Julie? Because he's omnipotent, omnipresent, and they aren't. So let's not obsess with the darkness. Let's walk in the light. Let's not obsess on Satan. Let's abide in Christ, okay? And without denying spiritual dynamics and spiritual warfare. F, first followers, after Jesus is tempted... And spends 40 days in the wilderness interacting with Satan. He comes back to where John the Baptist is baptizing, attracts his first followers. In fact, John the Baptist funnels them to him. Think of the word Japan, uh, not Bangladesh. Bangladesh will not help you. I have nothing against Bangladesh, but it's Japan. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel are the first five followers. Okay, Those boys are all from the northern part of Israel, they're in the south, just to interact with John the Baptist, presumably during a two-week vacation or a retreat they had done because they're looking for Messiah. They've now found him, and Jesus and his first five disciples uh, go to a wedding reception near Nazareth in the northern part of Israel, and that's where Jesus, as a great guest, great guests, all six of them, turns water into wine to keep the party going. In Jerusalem, for his first Passover, H stands for what? Look at the handout if you need to know. Harsh house cleaning. I mean, the, the major promises about the Messiah, the pulpit is the life of Christ, start before this, but the major promises start in about 2000 B.C. And Old Testament Israel's had 2,000 years to be looking for, preparing for the Messiah, as it were. And then John the Baptist hits the ground, which lines up with Isaiah and Malachi saying you're going to have a, a uh, advanced man to get you really ready. And when Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the first time during his public ministry, the entire religious system is corrupt and it's being, um, it's been hijacked by people with bad theology and bad motives. Their theology teaches salvation by works apart from the grace of God and their motivation is to be rich and famous. And that's not a good motivation for people, really, for Christians in any sphere, but especially not in the religious business, as they say, right? So that's H, harsh house cleaning. While in Jerusalem during his first Passover, Jesus has this incredible interview with the best-known teacher in institutional Judaism who's convinced that you must save yourselves by yourself by your good works, by being a good Jew. And he's pretty sure he's good enough, but he's not sure, very insecure. And Jesus says, that won't work. You've got to get a whole new spiritual birth. It's not about being good enough. It's about receiving a whole new life through God's grace, through faith and in that context, Jesus tells him the content of John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave a son. As Moses lifted up the serpent, the son's going to be lifted up on the cross, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish like a fire, has present abiding possession, everlasting life. That's, that's awesome, isn't it? On his way back from Jerusalem, first Passover, his ministry back to his home base in northern Israel called Galilee, that region, Jesus goes right through the area of Samaria where the hated, despised, half-Jew, half-Gentile population of the Samaritans lived. No self-respecting Jew would interact with a leper. No self-respecting religious Jew would ever would even travel to Samaria because Samaritans had spiritual cooties, you know. So do playing cards. Not, not bunco cards. Bunco cards are fine. It's the ones with kings and jacks that are inherently evil. Stuff isn't inherently evil. It's the way you use it. Baseball bats, knives, guns aren't inherently evil. They're, uh, you know, it's the people who use them and how they're used and where they're used and what you say and don't say when they're used, right? That's a good thing because my wife and my sisters, uh, just back in September, I'll confess their sins, they spent like 48 hours playing mahjong, not only with sinful playing cards, but with these little tiles with these satanic-looking symbols on them. But they're not satanic. They're Chinese, okay? I don't want to play Mahjong. I don't want to play card games. I'm not a card game player. Okay, can kick out. You assume Jesus would base his main ministry in northern Galilee, uh, the region of Galilee, in his old hometown where he'd been a tecton for 
for 18 years, from age 12 to 30. Nope, doesn't do that. Because at the very beginning of his ministry, now that he's been to Jerusalem and declared himself to be the Messiah there, he comes back home. There's a big buzz about who is he, what's he doing. He goes to the synagogue. They hand him the scroll for the daily Bible reading. This happens to be Isaiah 61. And uh, he reads it. And it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Roll it up. Sits down in front to tell you what it means. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He, Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And, of course, the people in town were so excited and happy to hear that, weren't they? They were scandalized. You know, the truth sometimes hurts. And uh, a mob yells and screams and tries to get his way. Mobs don't think. They react. And, uh, you know, it's the worst actor that kind of catalyzes the worst kind of things in, in mob rule. And uh, that's what you had there. And they took him to the brow of the hill. I had a teacher at the University of Houston tell me there are no hills. Tell us, not me personally, tell the class. He was a physics professor. There are, everybody knows there are no hills in, in, in Nazareth. Uh, that's what we call fake news in my business. Uh, it's a very hilly part of the area. And, and we'll go to the top of the area just outside of Nazareth where they tried to throw Jesus off this cliff. But he passed through their midst. That's K. Now L, location lateral. Rather than basing his ministry near his carpenter shop, he's on uh, the Sea of Galilee, the lake, and so he's bumping into fishermen all the time because that's where you fished in that part of the world. And now we come to M and N. M and N really are two aspects of what uh, people call the great Galilean ministry leading up until his last trip to Jerusalem at third Passover, fourth Passover actually, First Passover to second one is one year. Second to third is two years. Third to fourth is three years. Got his great Galilean ministry based on marvelous messages, Sermon on the Mount and other messages, but he would have repeated the essential content of Sermon on the Mount hundreds and hundreds of times. And then in today, nature neutralized. He's doing unique messianic. Don't be afraid of words. Messiah means savior. Messianic's the adjectival form of Messiah. It relates to Messiah. Jesus does miracles only the Messiah could do uh, or would do. And so N stands for nature neutralized. You might say, well, that's not possible. You can't violate scientific laws. Do you believe in airplanes? Do you believe in airplanes, Anthony? Uh, I mean, people didn't believe in airplanes until 1903, <laughs> right? Uh, that's what I didn't believe you could run the 10 minute, uh, four, it's 10 minute mile, the four minute mile until, uh, Roger Bannister broke it and then 18 months later about 12 people had run the impossible four minute mile. Yeah, airplanes don't violate the law of gravity, they just override it temporarily, right? Uh, the guy, the lawgiver can override the natural laws anytime. They're descriptive, not prescriptive, right? They don't limit what God can do then or now, right? So you never give up. The cool thing about miracles, they're never too late. The bad thing from my perspective is God doesn't do them on my cue. I mean, I wish he did. And we don't always get them when we want them. But uh, you can never give up, uh, which is a good thing for OSU fans to believe in. <laughs> I kept waiting for the miracle. And, you know, several times it looked like we might get over the edge. And, you know, we kind of had this history. It's been 18 years since, uh, I mean, they've heard us a couple of times, Iowa State, uh, at their place, especially Brandon Whedon's last year. I got to get this out. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's been 18 years since they beat us in Stillwater. But you know, it happens. You know, we prayed for a miracle, we didn't get it. Uh, so yeah, that's where we are now. And if you look at the A through Z system, just as an alphabet, we're right there. We're looking at nature neutralized, and now we come to Matthew 8, 1 through 4, and it looks like this: we're going to have the setting for this very important incident in the life of Christ. Then we're going to see an amazing appeal by an audacious anti-hero. How dare a leper even address somebody like Jesus Christ, the perfect righteous son of God. According to the religious rules, that was not acceptable. No way. Uh, you can almost stone him for just coming up and trying to talk to you. Jesus didn't seem to feel that way. And in fact, this guy expresses saving faith and Jesus immediately and graciously responds to him. And then he gives him a command not to be saved, but because he has been delivered from the leprosy and the cause spiritually of it to go obey the Old Testament law, as we'll talk about. If you diagram the life of Christ kind of thematically, 
you know, kind of as far as crowd appeal and buzz, popular interest from the beginning of the ministry until we get to the event next week, oh, where the religious leaders in Jerusalem take a public, formal, decisive, uh, unnegotiable uh, stand about who Jesus is to explain away his miracles. Till you get to that point, he's getting the word out as widely as possible to the nation. He's proclaiming himself, presenting himself to the nation Israel, and the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger. They're not all buying that he's the Messiah, but they're interested in what he's saying and what he's doing, for sure. After the event of next week, uh, we're going to see a seismic shift in the whole uh, tenor of Jesus' ministry because he kind of circles the wagons and he prepares the disciples to get ready for this. He doesn't specifically, explicitly talk about his death. He mentions it just kind of in shadows a couple times early. But it's right after this he starts saying, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of sinful men and crucified, but it rise again the third day. He doesn't say that until after that, because humanly speaking, after they say he's a satanically possessed false prophet, they have to kill him under the Old Testament law. just a matter of how and when. But right now, we're in this period of about 18 months where Jesus is presenting himself through messages and through nature, neutralized kind of miracles to validate his claims about who he is. Okay, So let's look at verse 1, the setting. When Jesus came down from the mountain, what he'd been doing on the mountain, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, right? Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That will never change. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is right in the middle of that in chapter 6. You can always find it there. Uh, you know, somebody told me recently, they, is this correct? They voted Pluto back into the solar system? I mean, as a planet? Somebody was telling me that. You know, it was a planet, then it was a dwarf planet, which doesn't really count as a planet. And then just, I think it was a group of these guys that we were talking about that. Was that in the uh, second hour? Yeah. They voted back, Angie? I feel so much better now, you know? I know the Plutonians are very encouraged by that, right? Yeah. Now, you know, sometimes I'll show you drawings that people have made, artists have made of biblical events, and I'll say, hey, this isn't a photograph, it's an artist's representation. Well, this is a photograph, but it's still an artist's representation. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a photograph from a movie made about the life of Jesus, but if you can see that leper, you know, he, he's obviously got some really bad skin disease. His, his skin is not normal. It's, it's pretty, pretty rough to look at. And he's got the oozing sores on his arm, and Jesus is interacting with him. But even if you see photographs of these events, realize there's still all his representations, right? Uh, and I always like to say, as somebody who's a geeky-looking guy myself, so I can relate to people losing their good looks, uh, Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, uh, Summer said that uh, the Messiah, Jesus, would not be particularly handsome, that we'd be attracted to his physical appearance, He'd just be an average Palestinian Jew. Uh, this actor is way too good looking to, to ha- have Jesus' physicality. He wasn't into that. Now, you know, as the, as the uh, Puritan preacher said once to the ladies in his church, hey, ladies, if the barn needs painting, you better paint it. Uh, and I think uh, those of us guys, you know, we comb our hair and we do what we can. The, the less hair you have, the more time you got to spend to kind of put it in the, the best possible configuration. Then you spray it down and pray it doesn't rain. You know, I usually park out to due west of the building in my little parking place that uh, Andrew painted for me uh, a few years ago, whenever it was. But uh, today I had Linda and Jean said, where did you park? I mean, how did you get here? Because they didn't see my car over there. Well, when I got here, it was pouring down rain. And with my hair issues, I, I can't get my hair wet. If I get my hair wet for a church, I'm going to wear a ball cap, you know, because it's it's ugly. I mean, little children, it would scare little children. It's a, it's not a good scene, man, when my hair gets wet. So I had to back in there, which is tough when you only have one eye that works. And it took me about 10 minutes, but nobody was there anyway, so I couldn't hear anything. And I eventually got in there, and then when James came in, he said, well, was that to avoid getting wet or so you can have a fast getaway today? <laughs> Boom, just, you know, jet out of here. I said, well, like both, really, so it can work. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, that's the one objection I have. And I get it. You know, if you're going to do a movie, movie about the Lord Jesus, you respectfully, you probably want him to be a nice-looking person. But 
Isaiah says he wasn't ugly, but he wasn't super handsome. He wasn't a mega model. He wouldn't have been a male model kind of a person. So that tells you a lesson. You know, uh, we don't want to judge people just on their physical beauty. They're a lot more important than that, right? Now, look at verse 2. An amazing appeal, this question by this leper who's interacting with Jesus like Jesus should interact with him like a, just a regular person. And that's against the rules, you know. An amazing appeal by an audacious anti-hero. We see one humble and hurting man express active, receptive trust in Jesus. Uh, and a leper came to him immediately after, shortly after the Sermon on the Mount as he comes down. He's in Galilee, not that far from Capernaum. And a leper somewhere between two towns uh, on the trail there came up to him, bowed down before him and said, Curios, uh, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That request is all about who Jesus is. And it acknowledges his own deficit and his inability to fix it. And that's important. But the real key to this, Jenny, is understanding how leprosy worked in the Old Testament. Now you might say, we're not in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. New Testament, right? Yeah. Those books were written after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Those books were written there. But they're set primarily before the life, death, and resurrection. And the New Testament era doesn't start until uh, resurrection, what happens 40 days later, the ascension, 10 days later, the events of Acts 2, Pentecost. That's when the New Testament era starts. So we're reading New Testament Gospels for New Testament believers that are set in the Old Testament under the law in Old Testament Israel. And if you And you'd be amazed how many people don't figure that out and they come up with all kinds of weird conclusions about what the Gospels mean. But you've got to understand how leprosy worked as part of the Mosaic Covenant in Old Testament Israel. Leprosy in the Old Testament was not the ailment that we call leprosy today, which is called Hansen Syndrome, which is an organic disease. Uh, it was a component. Old Testament leprosy was a component of intense divine discipline with a spiritual cause, a prolonged, deliberate, rebellious, really egregious sin against God and people. Think wife beaters, think child abusers, these kind of people who have slipped through the cracks of due, due process, and God chunks a particularly difficult, painful, serious spiritual discipline on those people under that uh, economy, and we'll show you what that means in a second. So this guy has been living for years, if not decades, a life of enthusiastic, intentional, deliberate, prolonged, unrepentant, serious sin. And again, wife beating, child abuse would be the kind of things he's doing repeatedly, who as a result has received this spiritual discipline from God to isolate him from the normative people of God who had their own sin problems, to isolate him from normative social contact and for other people's protection. Uh, his physical status, the leper's physical status, was an outward expression of his spiritual status. Pretty pitiful, pretty rough stuff, right? Quite so. So with that in mind, you know, as this guy comes to the Lord Jesus, I think he's seeking primarily forgiveness for his sins in addition to physical deliverance from his symptoms. And I'm, I think he's looking for both, not just one. And, and again, I know that we're in the New Testament era, and these books were written in the New Testament, and they're rightfully part of your New Testament, but this event is set in the Old Testament era. Now remember, big relational promises are what drives the biblical story. Think of the foundation of God's biblical plan of salvation as starting in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, where God picks a guy living in Iraq to be the human conduit through which the Savior would come and for the nation that's going to come out of him to be the Old Testament, we say, people of God. The Abrahamic promises promised him a land, a seed, ultimately Jesus, and a blessing and pointed to the Messiah. Now, Abraham lived in about 2000 B.C., Lori, uh, he promised that through his line, through Sarah, and they're too old to have children too, you know, it's kind of like uh, John the Baptist's parents, uh, takes a while, decades before they even had their child, Isaac, 
uh, but it's going to be through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God's going to produce a great nation. And at the end of the book of Genesis, that line adds up to how many people you think? A million? Five million? Seventy. Seven zero. That's it. That's how the book of Genesis ends, okay? That's all they got. When you read Exodus, you get a couple of verses saying, hey, uh, 400 years later, boom, here we are. That 70 is now over a million, but they're in Egyptian bondage, which is a strange way to start a nation. It's only after they come out of Egyptian bondage, and now you've got a million people with these promises to be a nation that don't have a constitution or any kind of structure. God gives them a structure. And it doesn't apply to the New Testament church. It was spirituality on training wheels. It was partial, preliminary, and points to the same Messiah. The Abrahamic unconditional foundational promises pointed to. But uh, how you process leprosy is talked about as a spiritual discipline. is talked about in the Old Testament covenant. Now, what's the rest of the story? Well, we're not living under the Old Testament. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10. Uh, the New Testament talks a lot about the fact that you can eat isn't it great we don't have to eat kosher because shrimp is on the don't list. Catfish is on the don't list. I mean, we're going to violate huge portions of Scripture on the 24th when we have catfish. But God says it's okay. How do I know that? Acts 10, you know, uh, Peter, who's a good Jewish boy, is shown this food on this blanket, and God says, arise, kill, and eat. And, he, and Peter says, I can't do it, God. That, that's all non-kosher food. I can't eat it. And what does God say? What I have cleansed, don't call unclean anymore. Now, if you want to eat kosher, and some Gentiles do, that's cool. It's a good way to eat, you know? Right? You can be vegetarian and other things, too. It's a healthy way to eat. Pritikin diet and all that good stuff. Um, but we're not under moral obligation anymore. And so we're in the New Covenant, looking back at events in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and in the Old Covenant, Leprosy wasn't Hansen syndrome, an organic disease that's not real contagious, but technically it is contagious. It's a, here, this is a physical expression of severe divine discipline on somebody who has deliberately, for a long period of time, been involved in serious, unrepentant sin in the covenant, or just very close to the covenant people of Israel. Okay? And again, this is important because Israel was told there's going to be one Messiah who would have two major ministries, one as a lamb, one as a lion. Uh, they were having trouble figuring that out. First Peter says it was hard to figure out, but the bottom line was it's one Messiah with two different advents, and we're living right here under the new covenant between the first and second advent, which is a wonderful place to be, although events lately scare me. That's just me. And when you look at the Old Testament promises about the first coming of Jesus, they're very specific. So Israel should have known exactly who he was. And this leper did, but Nicodemus wasn't sure. This leper got it, but nobody in the Sanhedrin except for Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus figure it out. You know, it's it's not for lack of information. Now, I don't usually do this, but let me read to you from a Bible dictionary. Uh, you think I'm boring. You know, watch this. <laughs> Easton's Bible Dictionary says this about leprosy in the Old Testament context. Uh, the Hebrew word is tesaroth, which means a smiting or to strike something or someone because the disease was a direct providential infliction as a discipline uh, to people under the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, lepers were required to live outside the camp or the city. This disease was an awful temporal punishment as a result of deliberate, serious, prolonged, unrepentant sin, like wife beating, like child abuse kind of thing. Symptoms included scab-like specks on the eyelids and on the palms, slowly spreading over the body, crusting, aren't you glad you came to church today? Crusting the affected parts with white scales and causing sores and swellings. From the skin, the disease would eat, I put eats, but it says eat, I miss. Uh, how did I copy and pasted that, but I, I managed to put an S on there. Inward to the bones. In Christ's day, a leper could not live in a walled town, though he might live on the outskirts of an open village out in the graveyard. He was required to have his outer garments torn as a sign of deep despair, to go bareheaded, uh, and to cover his beard with his mantle. He had to warn passers-by to keep away from him, calling out, unclean, unclean, when he got anywhere near 
other people. Under the Old Testament law for the people of Israel, leprosy was an outward, visible sign of deep inner spiritual corruption. This isn't something you're born with like the Hindus. This is something you've behaved and chosen uh, to receive, and you deserve it. Our Lord cured lepers on several occasions. Only two lepers are healed in the Old Testament, Miriam and Naaman. The divine power manifested during this illustrates the gracious dealings of Jesus toward people in curing the leprosy of the soul. So stop Easton, back to McCoy. The leper's word, words to Jesus here in Matthew 8. And our immediate, the, our Lord's immediate positive response is an excellent example of saving faith. Of what I like to call arts. A-R-T. Active, receptive trust. Saving faith is not mental assent to historical facts about Jesus. Is active, receptive trust to the person of Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And his death is the only thing you need to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. And it's a long way from Oklahoma to heaven, but it's hard, it's longer from Texas to heaven. I've measured it and it's slightly longer. You know, when you go to Israel, the guide will tell you, uh, when you go to the Wailing Wall, you know, people put prayer requests in the cracks. And they'll say, when you pray to God anywhere in the world, it's a long distance call. But when you pray from the uh, city of Jerusalem, it's a local call. You know, but that's not really true. But it's kind of cute, right? Notice, what does this guy say? Here's what I'm going to do for you, Jesus. Here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to make you. I'm going to promise you this. Now you do me this. Does he do that? He's got nothing to give. He's not even supposed to be talking to somebody else. Jesus graciously lets him interact with him. This is a child abuser, probably. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's, his faith is all about who Jesus is. Now watch this, Mike. Faith is only as good as its object. If you try to, you know, try to rappel down a mountain with kite string, you may really believe you can do it, but you're gonna go, you're going down. I remember watching birds fly in Opelika, Florida as a little kid, and I thought if I could just get a couple of two by fours strapped, taped, duct taped to my arms, I could flap it hard enough, I could, could fly. I really thought I could do that, like in first grade. And my mother had taught me out of it. It's just not going to work, you know. So she got out there and flopped and she broke her arm, but I learned a good lesson. Now, she didn't, she was too smart to do that, right? Faith is only as good as its object. We're very impressed by people who have, seem to have sincere faith, but, you know, sincere faith in falsehoods is, is a pitiful state to be in. We've got a prophesied, provided, resurrected Savior, and He we, our hope is built on nothing less than his blood and righteousness, right? Boom. So, if you are willing, you make me clean. In other words, man's saying, I got a problem. The serious sin that I've been involved in unrepentantly that got me to this pitiful physical condition. I got a problem. I can't fix it. It's my fault, but I want you to fix it. And that's all he's saying, you know? He's not saying, I'll give you this, I'll do that, and then you do something for me. He just says, if you are willing, if I'm not beyond savability, you can make me clean, and I want you to. That's the that's the heart of what he's saying, and that's what saving faith is. Little children can do that. People can do that on their deathbeds. Um, I haven't heard anybody around here lately say they don't believe in deathbed conversions, but for people to tell me they, they don't believe in them, I'm saying, well, Jesus does. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That guy had nothing to give Jesus, and he wasn't a thief. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. They crucified murderous terrorists. And they're claiming Jesus was potentially a murderous terrorist, which he wasn't. And what does he say? Remember me when you come to your kingdom. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself, but I want you to. And Jesus says, man, I wish you'd talk to me last week. Because there's a catechism you got to do. There's a sign. you got to walk an aisle, sign a card. He didn't do that. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. Go to Luke 18. Luke 18, 9 through 14 is a very nice parallel passage where Jesus himself is talking about the dynamics of saving faith. He illustrates it here. These are Those are notes I used on uh, Pueblo mission trips several times because I would always go back to that passage because they're living in a context that tells them if they're good enough Catholics, they can earn their way to heaven. So you've got to deal not with their sin so much as their dependence on their good works. They've got to change their minds about their sin, it's real and it's their fault, and the fact they can't save themselves. 
Hebrews talks about repentance toward dead works. You've got to stop thinking you can contribute to this. It's not something you achieve, something you receive. Jesus was telling them a parable. Uh, oops, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous enough to earn their own salvation and viewed everybody else who wasn't as good as they were religiously, externally, with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee who is dedicated to the proposition that he's so special he can earn his way to heaven by being a really religious Jew. And the other was a tax collector, a Jewish guy that's actually working for the hated Roman government that had occupied the country for a century. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. You don't want to pray to yourself, even in prayer meeting. You want to pray to God. (laughs) God, I thank you that I am just such a marvelous person. I thank you that you are so lucky I'm working for you. Uh, I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm certainly not an adulterer. And I'm certainly not like this guy. You see how pitiful, how terrible. He's working for the Romans, man. I'm not anything at all like him. I fast twice a week. That's twice more a week than Jesus did. He fasted once a year, David Fillman. And they hit him on that. It didn't matter, but they thought it did. Pay tithes on all I get. Of course, I shelter my money I should use to help my parents because it's devoted to God, so I can't help my parents. But the tax collector, standing some distance away from the temple precinct, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He's so aware of his inability and his uh, culpability, spiritually. He's beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm guilty, and I am unable to save myself. I need salvation by grace. Jesus says, I tell you, this guy, that man, He's talking schematically. There's a little bit more involved there, of course. But that's the heart that seeks, like Calvin says, the empty hand receives the marriage of Christ. I tell you, this man went to his house justified. But the tax collector, not the Pharisee, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So I say the point, the parable, the principle, salvation's God's way is God's the Savior and Sue Smith Raskus the Savee. And... She understands enough about that that she actually lives a consistent life out of grace and gratitude and she doesn't have to have a bunch of uh, religious, uh, legalistic kind of things to, to hang her up, right? Now it's interesting that, and I'll give you the short version of this, you have whole books of the, of the scripture that emphasize we're not saved by anything we do meritoriously, but we are called as believers to have lives full of good, good works. And when you look at the relationship between saving faith and works, they don't overlap and they're not artificially separated, but they're two distinct but related things. That's my schematic. That's where you get a real graphic designer person to make it look, to make it pop. That's me. That's Anthony. Can you tell a difference? You know, same thing, only different, right? But, you got to be careful. As much as I want people to show up for prayer meeting and get baptized and come to Bible study and show up on Sunday and act like they really care about what we're doing up here for 50 whole minutes every week, and that's 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 like one sixty eighth of one one hundred sixty eight of your week. So I know it's a big chunk of your week, but you know it's kind of our our foundational thing here. Uh, I want people to do that, but I'm not going to tell you, unless you do that, you can't really be saved or that kind of thing. It works when you convince people to come to prayer meeting. They don't come to prayer meeting, they've got to hell. People will show up for prayer meeting, but they're trusting themselves to save themselves. That's not a good thing. So the setting, the amazing appeal. Now let's look at Jesus immediately and graciously responding to this guy who's offered him nothing but his sin, his disease, and his un inability to do anything about it. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And that's technically, you weren't supposed to touch lepers. But in this case, he's transforming. The, the virtue's going from Jesus to this guy. The uh, the uh, identity is not going from the guy to, to Jesus. Uh, I am willing. That's not the problem. Be cleansed. And immediately this guy had his leprosy cleansed, cleansed and he received the gift of eternal life, so his sins are forgiven. Okay, He, he gets the, the, the brand new start, the new birth. And then Jesus says to him immediately not to be saved because now he has been forgiven by his saving faith, through his saving faith, by the grace of God. Jesus says, now, see that you tell nobody about this until you do what Leviticus 13 said, 
cleanse lepers, and you know why lepers happen, why these people have leprosy, because of persistent, deliberate. It's not like they struggle with it. We all struggle with certain weaknesses. You know, Hebrews says, lay aside the sin that so easily besets you. We all have weaknesses, okay? I've never been tempted one time as an adult to brag about my beautiful hair. I make fun about my hair, but I'm not, that's not my weakness, okay? If I had hair, I probably would, so that's why I don't have it, probably, right? But I have other temptations, you know, and you do too. Uh, but we fight them, we struggle them. The, the evidence of that you're fighting against it, you know, that's why Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the sin nature. Because you've always got a sin nature, this side of heaven is going to be pulling you and do the wrong thing. That doesn't excuse it, it does explain it. But, boom, uh, Jesus says, look, we're under the law here, remember? New Testament book, under the law, Leviticus 13 says, lepers that were cleansed were supposed to go to the temple uh, for special sacrifices and to present themselves to the priest. We might say, well, nobody ever got healed of leprosy. I'm not so sure. Uh, Miriam doesn't count, because this is, she's before you've got this temple tabernacle set up. Uh, Naaman is kind of a special case. But in the same way that some Christians get way out of fellowship, and by the grace of God and by therapeutic input from people like Doug or their best friend or their neighbor or their mother who's been praying for them, they eventually come back to fellowship, and it's amazing. From time to time, people, by the direct interaction with them and the Lord and the gracious techniques of Old Testament spirituality, could come back and be healed of leprosy by God's grace. Uh, but here we've got Jesus doing it supernaturally, immediately, and Jesus saying, hey, because this is a unique case, doesn't mean you're exempt from following the rules here, the real biblical rules. Go show yourself to the priest, because that's going to obey Old Testament uh, statutes, which he's still under at that point, and it's going to be a whale of a great testimony to the religious leaders, as we're going to see on next week, are about to say, well, yeah, he does miracles, he heals lepers, but pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He does them in satanic power. He does them. He's doing it. But it's in satanic power. Uh, you know, uh, he says, uh, be willing. If you're willing, I am willing. Think about willing. Uh, I can't help but think the last trip into Jerusalem before the crucifixion. Jesus looks at the city of uh, Jerusalem. It would look, would look something like that, except for the Dome of the Rock. He would have had the, uh, the second temple, Herod's temple as it's called. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to call you like a mother hen calls her chicks, but you were not willing. Here's a guy who's totally out of the system to the Jewish religious mind. He's got nothing, and yet he's a prime candidate for salvation and deliverance because he says to Jesus, if you're willing, you make me clean. After receptive trust, Jesus says, that's our problem. But he looks at the city of Jerusalem as a whole three years from now, and he says, I wanted you, you didn't want me. It's amazing, but true. You couldn't make it up. Take this to heart. Uh, when you need a picture of God's amazingly great grace, think of the Lord and the leper in Matthew 8. You know, that's where it is. And I think that's uh, very much overlooked. This is stressing that nobody's so bad they can't be saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. The leper is a Hebrew outcast, and yet he comes to Jesus. He Jesus treats him right where he is, doesn't he, Doug? He doesn't say, hey, you've got to go into a program for six months before I can talk to you. He can do surgery right on the spot. As soon as he expresses saving faith, I got it. You got it, man. No problem. So nobody is so bad. So I've been praying for Paul McCartney's salvation unrepentantly, unashamedly, for most of my adult life. He's 11 years older than I am. And if I ever get as old as Paul McCartney is, uh, you can call me elderly. I'm still at least 11 years away from that. But uh, he lived a rugged life in many ways. But, uh, yeah, he can be saved by God's grace. And, uh, you know, we, we never stop praying for Bob Shallot. Look what happened to him. So I think the leper there is showing how amazing God's grace is. They're just uh, uh, active, receptive trust away. But let me finish this way. Don't forget this. I know I say this a lot, but some of you forget this. Many of our non-Christian family and friends assume Christianity is a do-it-yourself project for salvation, that we think we're going to heaven because we're better than they are, because we are nicer, or we do more good things, and we even come to church on rainy days like this one. So we're better than they are. That's If you think like that, you don't get the program yet. 
Danny's going to heaven not because he's a good person, but because he has a great Savior. Now he's a good person as a fruit of that. Janice is a very nice person. Unless she has like four weddings on one weekend. Then she's not so nice because she's intense. She's got to get the wedding cakes done. I get that. I can be like that too, and I'm focusing on something. But uh, niceness won't get, it's not good enough to go to heaven. You got to have a perfect Savior. So, you know, we got to make it clear we're not looking down our nose at these people and we think we're better than they are, even though sometimes we almost give them that impression by the way we act or interact with them. If Jesus is willing to be civil to this leper before and then respond immediately to his core need when he asks, I think we ought to be gracious to the lepers in our lives, so to speak. And the flip side of that is because American culture, to the extent they take Christianity seriously anymore, and a lot of them don't, because they think it's good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, and Jesus decides who the good people and the bad people are, as opposed to coming to save all people based on his work. Uh, some people think they're just too bad. Even if they're not sure they believe in God, they're pretty sure if he's up there, they're too bad to ever be saved. Well, I think a passage like this one, when explain what leprosy is and what it meant, is just showing you that uh, you can't be too bad to be saved. And it also stresses that when we think about repentance and faith, you know, repentance means to change your mind about your sin, yourself, and your salvation. Obviously, you, you, you can't rationalize your sins and need a Savior. You've got to recognize, I'm sinful, it's my fault, and I've got culpability before God. I need a Savior to save me from my sins. But you also have to change your mind about your good works, about your ability to save yourself. First century Judaism, and to the extent that Christianity still affects our culture, a lot of non-Christians observing Christianity think that they're just too bad. They can't do enough good stuff to undo the bad stuff they've already done. And that's not the issue. The only people who are savable are sinners. And the good news is, the bad news, that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The good news is that Christ is a friend of sinners, died for the sins of the world, including yours. And so... Even the the worst type of sinners, dare I say, wife beaters and child abusers, can be saved by God's grace through faith. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would further expand our conception of your grace and salvation to line up more closely to what the Lord Jesus demonstrates in a passage like this one. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart, not just recognized and repented about sin in their life, but help them to repent, change their mind about trying to be good enough, nice enough to earn salvation. They've got to change their mind and punt that away too and just say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I'm sinful. I can't fix it. I can't be good enough to earn it, but I want you to forgive me and save me based on what you've done for me, dying for my sins and rising again. So open hearts if uh, anyone is in that condition today. And and for the most of us who are believers, help us to realize that uh, your grace is so extravagant and so overwhelming um, that it is makes everyone savable, uh, you know, at least theoretically. And help us to interact with people, including people with odd uh, decorations on their faces and weird clothing and weird uh, and profane kind of speaking habits help us to realize that we can be instruments of grace uh, even to the most untouchable outcasts, however we define that in our own mind, and help us to realize that here Jesus welcomes and saves an outcast, an untouchable, a leper, and help us to realize that you want us to be involved in that enterprise too and contribute to that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.